0: Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. This month, we continue our discussion on the universal basic income, a radical idea to extend regular, unconditional cash benefits to everyone. The UBI challenges certain social protection orthodoxies For example, by providing an equal amount of support to all, independent of needs, and by removing obligations on the part of recipients in order to receive benefits. There are different views on how generous a UBI should be, whether it's in addition to or replaces other forms of social spending, and the literal multi-billion dollar question is how to pay for it. My guests for this episode are Francesca Bastali from ODI and Dr. Jürgen de Vispelata from the University of Riga, who is also co-founder of the Journal of Basic Income Studies. This is the second part of my interview with Francesca and Jürgen. In last month's episode, we explored the UBI and the world of work. We don't
1: see mass reductions in participation in paid work, whether linked to a UBI or indeed other types of UBI minimum income schemes.
2: One of the really, really interesting features of basic income is that it's meant to support you in work and it's meant to support you out of work.
1: The fact that it's universal, unconditional, paid on a, on a regular basis, does hold potential for addressing some of the persistent gender inequalities in the world of work.
2: We think that in many cases, this sort of exit is a bit of a hollow threat. You know, even under a bisque income, workers can't really easily leave their jobs.
0: So, if you missed part one, please do go back and start there. In this episode, we'll explore some of the other key considerations in the UBI debate. Are UBIs affordable? Are they equitable? How should they fit in with existing social policies? And, bottom line, Should countries take the UBI seriously, and will one ever be achieved? For all the considerable hype and interest in the UBI, no country actually has one in place, despite many pilots and trials in countries as diverse as Kenya and Brazil, Canada and Finland. So let's pick the interview up where I ask about what might be the number one objection to the UBI, namely, cost. We've started to talk about money, which is pretty key to this whole conversation. Francesca, we're talking about major investments here. It's several to many percentage points of GDP, depending on whether a UBI is provided at levels to eliminate poverty or perhaps some lower fraction of the poverty line. The money, as they say, has to come from somewhere. What are some of the ways that people propose to pay for UBIs? So,
1: where we've seen UBIs actually implemented, Governments have relied on different ways of financing. One way of financing a UBI is through the reallocation of resources away from other services or benefits. And so if you take the example of Iran, Iran rolled out a national unconditional cash transfer scheme, essentially universal basic income 2010-2011. This was financed through a phasing out of food and fuel subsidies. If you take the case of Alaska, there, you know, a UBI is an annual dividend paid through a investment fund that is financed by oil revenues. Uh, In other contexts, if you take the example of what are not full UBIs, but say that you take universal child benefits, which are not full UBIs, but are paid universally to children in a country and exist in a high number of particularly of high income countries. These are generally funded out of general taxation when we think of proposals on the table because there you know there are a number of very concrete proposals across countries worldwide on launching a ubi there are again a range of proposed mechanisms for financing these schemes and they commonly rely on a combination of instruments so you take some of the cases in the us but even in, you know some of the proposals in south korea elsewhere where revenue would be raised by government by tapping into resources that are currently undertaxed. Importantly, of course, increasing taxes on wealth, on high earners or net wealth individuals and and companies, green taxes and pollution taxes. But also there are proposals around introducing new value-added taxes and so on. There are also examples of UBI-type schemes, and I use that word to, to refer to what are often pilots or even experiments, so that you know that are financed through either non-profit organizations or, you know, increasingly also philanthropies. So give GiveDirectly's project in Kenya that funds a UBI there, via non-for-profit organization, but also examples of philanthropy. And I'm thinking of the, some of the U.S. pilots uh, that are funded uh, essentially by by silicon valley entrepreneurs i think you know here it's it's actually quite interesting and these examples raise a number of questions so many of these schemes are set up to really compensate for job losses or associated with some of the developments in in technology and automation they also raise questions about more broadly what schemes of this kind really mean in terms of broader social and fiscal policy and their sustainability.
2: One thing about this is like, whatever the gimmicky stuff with the pilots, this is just not a sustainable way to fund a social exactly. protection scheme in a country, right?
1: It's not social protection. I mean, it's not-, not at it's, all. It's yeah, not, exactly. so I think, I mean, it raises questions about what are we talking about? <laughs> but many call it a UBI. And some of these some of these experiments that they're doing at the city level, you know, with these mayors across the U.S., But then there's the question of, yeah, what is it? How, you know, how does this fit into the wider context? I mean, I mean,
2: a a, a lot of the thing, though, which I think people often underestimate the difference between running a pilot and running a policy, right? So yeah, you have all sorts of special funding for two-year type of pilots and stuff. But thinking the sustainability of financing as a full-on policy, not just expanded, but also run over time, you know.
0: Jürgen, we've been talking about financing. Does it ultimately come down to cost? Are UBIs considered just too expensive to be seriously considered?
2: So people are asking this question, right? And, and I think that's slightly the wrong question. So I preferred the version that one of my colleagues back at the University of Bath, Luke Martinelli, uh, he phrased it as, is there a basic income that we can afford that is still worth having? right because you can imagine at some point a basic income can be made very inexpensive and it can be made very expensive and it can be made in a way that fits with existing budget or it can be proposed in a way that really requires a lot of extra financial capacity so to speak but but the more inexpensive you make it the less this basic income will be able to do. And at some point, these are just two kind of conflicting constraints, if you like, right? So when it comes to cost, I I mean, for me, I often find there's sort of two big misunderstandings in that debate. So there's sort of an accounting misunderstanding. My former collaborator, Carl Weiderquist, calls this the difference between the net cost and the gross cost of basic income. So the gross cost basically is just, you know, you take the amount of people in a country and the level of basic income and you do a little sum and that's the cost of basic income. And, you know, you can discount it with some of the programs that that it might be absorbed by it, you know, and, and then you have a slightly revised number, but it's still going to be a massive, massive number. What that misses is the fact that At the end of the day, yes, everyone gets a basic income, but the idea within the basic income community is that people on the high income side, they in a way pay back their own basic income, right? Yes, basic income is universal, but it is implicitly targeted towards the lower end of the income distribution because that's where you have the net beneficiaries. The net cost of a basic income is only the cost of a basic income of the people who receive it and are not able to pay it back, so to speak, right? Your question was, does it all come down to cost? Well, for me, it all comes down to politics. But unfortunately, the cost is a huge part of politics, <laughs> The two objections that are often raised and always raised against basic income is, on the one hand, is the laziness objection, which we already discussed, and the second one is the objection of cost. So it is something that no matter what, we have to deal with, and we have to deal with sensibly, definitely.
0: While we're talking about resources, Francesca, doesn't this come down to the difference between equality and equity? is it really right to spread out benefits through the entire population so that everybody receives something equally rather than concentrating resources more on those with greater needs and and addressing some of those equity deficits?
1: So we live in societies that are highly unequal. And in fact, income and wealth inequalities are are on the rise in in many countries. And so in these contexts, the idea of concentrating resources to those that are most in need is intuitively appealing, especially if we assume that there's a fixed budget. However, uh, this picture changes a bit when you start to take into account the realities of people's lives and into the life course. So essentially, when you want to concentrate resources on particular population groups, so and that means targeting resources, they, they come at a cost. And by that, I mean both sort of financial costs, but other types of costs as well. The financial administrative costs arise from having to identify who would receive a transfer or an income scheme against those that don't. And that alone can be administratively quite demanding, particularly the the more narrow and complex the means testing or, or targeting mechanism is. But there are other types of costs as well. So in regards to, for instance, the world of work, there are costs around potential disincentive effects or behavioral effects that might be uh, triggered as a result of means testing. And again, the, the more narrow the means testing, the more you might find that kind of distortion generated by a targeted transfer. There are social costs that arise from the tensions, social tensions and divisions that are created when when you start to essentially divide societies and split those that are identified as being somehow deserving of an income support scheme and from those that that are not. And then there, of course, there are all the political economy type costs. So in particular, narrow means testing can be and has been associated with weaker public support for policies. So compared with policies that have higher population coverage, these generally enjoy higher support, public support and, and political support. And this translates typically into also higher budgets for, for these schemes. And this comes back to the financing and sustainability of policy. In in sum, essentially, when you start to factor in the realities of the dynamics of people's lives, uh, changing circumstances, and what that means in terms of administering means tested or conditional transfers vis-a-vis universal or universalistic type schemes that are unconditional, once you start to factor in the the potential political economy dynamics of public policy, some of the potential benefits or what are intuitively appealing aspects of targeting, frankly, are weakened. And actually, the the arrow would point towards the potential benefits of uh, fully universal or indeed more universalistic and unconditional approaches.
2: I fully, fully agree with Francesca. And and. To my mind, this, I mean, it was a good question, but it's a fake opposition, if you like, right? Because this idea that we're giving Elon Musk a basic income, no, we are not, not really. You know, yes, he gets a check in the thing, but we're also sending him a tax bill instead, right? So, I mean, uh, Philippe Van wrote this thing, which I think is really, really spot on, which is saying, look, We give basic income to the rich because it benefits the poor, right? And the reasons it does that is all the reasons that Francesca was saying.
0: Jürgen, in your writing, you've pointed out that social policies in general are path dependent. It takes a lot for countries to deviate from historic approaches. We are living through an enormous rolling series of health and economic shocks right now. Has the COVID shock disrupted or at least affected political thinking about the UBI?
2: That's a really, really interesting question. So I think we're still trying to figure out what is really explaining this recent interest in this income. How does that interact, you know, with the financial crisis, with concerns about... AI and technological unemployment, which you could view as a sort of a crisis in the making as well. Now with the pandemic, COVID nineteen, so that's a lot of crisis. And in some sense, crisis is a window of opportunity. And I think we need to be careful thinking about that for various reasons. One, there's actually some research showing that at the end of the day, crisis—I mean, they sort of cause interesting blips in sort of policy attention and media attention, but they don't necessarily lead to full-on kind of institutional and program reforms as much as we like to think. When we think about basic income and path dependencies, is to really appreciate that it's a lot easier to introduce a basic income in a country that does not have a huge machinery of welfare state institutions already in place. Because why? Well, because the moment the basic income goes in there, it has to interact in all sorts of complicated ways with these programs or it has to replace programs. And that raises all sorts of issues with people being resistant against that and so on and so forth. And things can go wrong very fast. The basic income discussion in, say, a country like South Africa or Namibia is going to be a very different discussion. From Chile or Argentina or the United States or Canada or Finland and Norway or the UK, you name it. One of the reasons why I like base experiments, because they actually allow us to test out this machinery. I really kind of think we basically should just have basic experiments in every single country and see what happens. Not just what happens in terms of whether people are getting more lazy or not. I think that's a lot of rubbish. Right. I think the really, really interesting thing is what happens when basic income as a policy interacts with all sorts of other policies and how can we make that fit.
0: Francesca, do you think the COVID experience, perhaps the experience countries have had with having to rapidly expand programs, many of them have been entirely unconditional, how has all of that practical experience impacted the way countries are thinking about the UBI?
1: I think the the COVID crisis has seen a resurgence in momentum around, around the UBI for a number of reasons. I mean, there's new and renewed attention to the role of, of cash transfers. And more specifically, what we've seen is the waiving of conditionalities, all of this in order to enable the rapid expansion of cash and income support as part of the COVID response. And in this sense, it's really a sort of a proof of concept of How effective cash transfers can be, even if they're not conditional, even if they're not narrowly means tested or following. Complex targeting procedures, but there are other ways in which the crisis and is influencing the discussion, and, and and indeed some form of experimentation around a basic income, and that's building on a decently in the short term a renewed sense of of solidarity and of potential for collective action and and and, and the shift towards collective responsibility. Um, I think you know if we look at some countries where the Crisis response has triggered broader conversations around a basic income, and I'm thinking of Brazil. I'm thinking of South Africa. You know, there's no question that the adjustments made since the onset of the crisis, in order to expand income support provision to to population groups that were previously excluded, has contributed to conversations and debates on a basic income. On the other hand, we need to not lose sight of the wider picture, and this comes back to some of the. Points Jürgen has been making, and and longer term trends, you take a country like Brazil, where, in terms of cash transfer response, yes, it was you know quite phenomenal in terms of both the population coverage. You know, it, it, we saw an expansion up to a third of the population was receiving a minimum income scheme as a response to the crisis, but this comes against a, a background of systematic ongoing dismantling of welfare provision, including social protection, in the lead up to the crisis. So, yes, all very well. You know, There's a renewed emphasis on cash and on, on the potential of particular features of cash, you know, unconditional, universal. Uh, but then there's the question of where does that all fit in, given the wider picture. And this, of course, all in a context where we are now moving in many countries to a situation where the you know, pressure on revenues and on the fiscal side of things is being felt. And we're seeing you know, announced cuts in social
0: spending and a potentially a gradual move towards austerity. As I engage with this debate, I sometimes wonder if the UBI is acting a little bit as a straw man or is is representing an extreme negotiating position that allows us to bring attention to the limits of current welfare systems, to their problems, things that we need to fix, hopefully build some momentum around key policy choices like universality and conditionality, but that in many cases, you know, a full UBI is the bridge too far and is, in fact, no one really thinks it can be achieved. (laughs) What do you think about that? Would it be enough to see incremental change towards UBIs without achieving the UBI itself? Or is there something about the the real deal, the whole complete fundamental UBI that really ultimately should be what we are working towards?
2: So, you know, I mean, I'm sort of with Voltaire on this, right? I mean, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good right? So there is a lot to be said for basic income positively impacting social protection without necessarily getting to a full basic income. I mean, think about things like, you know, having less sanctions and having less monitoring is a good thing, right? It's a good thing for the system. It's a good, I think. And it's definitely a good thing for the people who are in, trapped into the system, if you like, right? Increasing coverage is a good thing. You know, reducing complexity is a good thing. More generous payments is a good thing. You know, more more individualism as opposed to household-based calculations. Those are all good things. And we see some of all of that happening. And they're all part of the BISK income discussion itself, right? So if that is happening, why do we still need a BISK income? Well, one, one of the reasons is that All these individual items, I mean, they're all very interesting, but in a way, it's hard to to fully anchor them into social protection unless they're all tied in together. Uh, Basic income puts all these things together, and that means it mutually reinforces the effects. But also, very importantly, going back to the politics, it's also more likely to be more robustly instituted and protected, and it'd be less it'd be less likely to be decreased by the next government, so to speak.
0: Francesca, there are other pathways to expanding social protections and I guess arguably for addressing some of these disrupting forces we've been talking about, like the changing nature of work. We were talking about social protection flaws in a recent episode that combined social assistance and insurance. You know, these are the more kind of classic views of of how protections can be achieved. Given the alternatives, investment in other kinds of social protection or reform of the welfare state, investment in services, which I haven't really talked about here but can often be seen as a, a trade-off for those very sort of right-wing views around minimising the role of the state in providing services, things like minimum wage policy, you know, we can't go into all of these alternatives but they do exist. Bottom line for you, do you think the UBI is where governments should be putting their attention, or is this something that really does need to be considered seriously at this point in time?
1: The answer is yes. I think that governments should be putting their attention to to UBI, and there are are a number of reasons for this. I mean, the the UBI has a huge contribution to make. First of all, around the question of how we understand work. There's no question that that it is now absolutely critical and central, and COVID has, has emphasized this even more clearly that we need to reconsider and and, and think about what we mean by work. And that equating work with paid work or paid employment is simply not working. So we need to more carefully uh, consider unpaid work, but also wider tasks and activities that may have limited or no monetary value, but that are of value to individuals and society. Because until we do that, some of the shortcomings and gaps in existing social protection schemes will not be addressed because essentially they are based on assumptions and the conceptualization about work and the valuation of work that then leads to the replication or perpetuation of certain inequalities. And the role of UBI here is is central. There's a second potential contribution, which is around uh, policy design and implementation options. So the UBI presents potential advantages and benefits over other type of income support schemes. So in contrast with schemes that focus on narrow means testing or targeting and on narrow conditionalities sometimes, which can be very punitive and that ultimately work against poverty and inequality reduction objectives, UBI showcases what the options in terms of design implementation are and I think indicates an important way forward. The third important contribution that UBI makes and, and the reason why governments should be putting attention here is that it emphasizes the role of wider labor policies, but also basic services. And this, again, comes back to a point that Jürgen has repeatedly made, that a UBI doesn't operate in a vacuum. Now, this is true for cash transfers more broadly, but the whole UBI debate and, and implementation in, in very practical terms necessitates a wider conversation around the system as a whole, and this is absolutely crucial. And this is you know, why governments need to be talking about and, and putting their attention on UBI. So would a UBI help tackle existing gaps and, and inconsistencies in social protection systems um, and in way wider sort of labor regulation and so on? Well, it, it, really, it really depends. It's not by chance that there are advocates of UBI across the political spectrum. And I think we need to be very clear about, so you know, what are we talking about here? Some see the UBI as part of a wider plan to shift uh, risk and, and responsibilities increasingly towards individuals away from the collective. Under this approach, a UBI will contribute to an increasingly sort of residualist, minimalist social protection system. But on the other end of the spectrum, the UBI is actually viewed as an element or a component to the wider reconfiguration of the social contract and as part of renewed efforts to to define responsibilities across the state, individuals, employers, or the the private sectors. In this scenario, the UBI or or UBI type uh, um, scheme would be part of a wider package, as we, as we were just saying, that would include, yes, minimum wage scheme, labour regulation, provision of good quality basic services, and it is in this scenario that a UBI would contribute to a fairer and, and more productive, in a, in a wider sense, world of work.
0: Jürgen, do you think we'll ever see a true UBI implemented, and what do you think it would take to get there?
2: Yes, will we ever see UBI? If I knew the answer to that, I probably could make a lot of money on the betting markets, right? So let me point at actually an example of where basic income already exists, or something that gets us probably the closest to basic income that we've seen. And that's a little municipality called Maricá in Brazil, near Rio de Janeiro. So they, they set up a Renda Básica de Cidadania, in 2013, and expanded it in 2019. And at the moment, I think it covers 25% of the population there. So that's like 44,000 people or something thereabouts. And the idea is to expand it. It's also funded through oil revenues, so that, you know, Marica finds itself in a particularly nice situation in that regard. Very, very interestingly, it's actually paid out in a local currency called the Mumbuka, which is actually fully backed by a special bank there. So you you not just have basic income, you also have a whole sort of local currency type of network set out. And there's a whole bunch of other policies, but that is a place. Where effectively, you know, something like basic income as a policy, this is not a pilot, this is not an experiment, this is an actual policy that effectively already exists and will be expanded to do the like full-on version, right? So at the moment, it's unconditional, it's individual, but it's not fully universal yet. So this is near Rio de Janeiro, cities around there are now taking a real interest. So to my mind, Brazil very much is the country to watch at the moment. At the same time, I mean, there really just are a huge amount of challenges, right? To my mind, a lot of these challenges really kind of boil down to politics in the broadest sense, right? So in order to have something like a basic income implemented, we we need a, a sort of a broad coalition of actors. So, for example, the people who are interested in gender equality and the care agenda need to sit together with trade unionists who worry about basic income, but nevertheless somehow be convinced that, you know, that basic income is good for their Constituency as well, and potentially then have to sit back with the self-employed and with small businesses, and so on and so forth. Bringing all these things together is not always that straightforward. And and I'll make one final point. I think one of the biggest sort of philosophical issues around basic income is that ultimately basic income is a policy that is about trusting people. You give people an income support, and then you let them do with that what they want, effectively, right? So that just means that we don't have a policy that controls people. We have a policy that trusts people. And that actually is a very fundamental mind shift, you know, for many, many people. I'm not quite sure whether we're ready for that. But I think that's a fundamental thing that has to happen before we can build this constituency which then puts pressure on coalitions and that is the thing that will kind of get us basic income
0: thank you this is such an enormous topic we could keep talking for hours but we'll we'll end it there thank you very much francesca and jürgen for being our guides to the universal basic income today thank
1: you joe
2: thanks joe for me as well
0: Before we go, we'll end with some quick wins. Each month, we ask a guest for recommendations, news, and stories that have sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. With me is Dr. Jim Pugh, co-founder of the US-based Universal Income Project.
3: Welcome, Jim. Thank you for having me.
0: Jim, just before we turn to your recommendations today, we've just heard an interview with Francesca Bastali and Jürgen de Visbalada on various debates relating to the universal basic income. You're an advocate of the universal basic income in the US, and it, as a concept, it has gained some momentum over recent years. So what is driving interest in universal programs and the UBI in the US?
3: So I got involved with work around universal basic income about seven years ago. And at that point, the driver very much was fears of automation and that that could alter in some really transformative way the job situation within the US. Therefore, having a society where the idea of full employment just wouldn't make sense anymore. And so UBI was brought forward as a possible counter to this. So that even if people didn't have jobs, they would still be getting an unconditional income. That very much drove that early interest in those days. Over time, though, that really shifted in a pretty fundamental way. As we dug into and started to better understand the situation with the social safety net within the United States, realized that UBI wasn't just something that we may need down the road to deal with automation. It really was something that we needed today that already we had a society where people just had nowhere near the degree of financial security that was necessary to be fully functioning and productive.
0: Very briefly on pilots, and in the discussion we just heard, our guests also talked a little bit about high-profile UBI or quasi-UBI pilots that have been trialed in the US in recent years in places like Oakland and Stockton. These have been relatively small compared to trials in other countries. I'm thinking of the Give Directly pilot in Kenya, in Finland, and of course others. In the U.S. context, what is the value of pilots like these and how do they influence or advance the debate?
3: It has certainly been true that to date U.S. pilots have been on the smaller side. We do have a few that are currently launching that are considerably larger with several thousand people as there's been more interest in basic income and you have cities that are actually putting public tax dollars into it. But Most of the pilots are in the hundreds rather than thousands. The main value that I see coming from pilots, it's less actually about rigorous data outcomes and it's more about how this affects the narrative. Because the main concerns about UBI aren't data-driven concerns or really cultural concerns, what is going to make the most difference as far as can we advance politically is can we chip away at those narratives and provide a counter-narrative And if we can be providing compelling stories about how this is actually making a huge difference, how it's not leading people to be lazy, how it's something that is really achievable that doesn't seem too far off, that makes all of our political fights on scaling this up that much easier and allows us to really create the snowball effect of building momentum that eventually, hopefully, allows us to establish a, a full national UBI.
0: The audience for this podcast and for socialprotection.org is largely looking at social protection in the global south. And, of course, there is already a lively debate around UBIs and universal approaches to social protection in many countries, There's also a wealth of experience and evidence from decades of research into cash transfers precisely on some of these issues that are really crucial to this debate around whether welfare creates dependence or whether welfare is an unacceptable cost or whether it's an essential investment in a a nation's development. Can you give us a sense, how does evidence and experience from other countries influence debates in the
3: U.S.? Well, I'll start with the bad news, which is, I think for our political debates, it matters far less than it ought to. That I think there's some very important lessons that arise there. But when it comes, frankly, from any other country, there's often almost immediately to push back that, oh, that doesn't apply here. We're a different situation. The good news is that amongst people who are working more behind the scenes, on policy. I I think that oftentimes when we have lessons and discoveries from international contexts, that really motivates a desire to explore and replicate that in a domestic context within the U.S. And so that there has been a number of the findings internationally around cash transfers that have certainly influenced planning around what sort of pilot programs we run, what sort of political analyses and policy analyses that we encourage people to do within the U.S. that can then hopefully be able to yield an aligned finding that then does have a much larger influence in our political debates here.
0: Turning now to your quick wins for the month, what have you brought for us today?
3: I would really recommend for folks who have access to it, there is a show on Netflix called Made, which came out in the last year, I believe. And it's based on the true story of a young woman and her child who are trying to get out of an abusive relationship and having to navigate demeaning and inaccessible social services to really get the absolute bare minimal support in the US. And it really highlights, in my opinion, how UBI could be so transformative for these many, many Americans who are trapped or just being beaten down by our current systems.
0: It is extraordinary how that highlights the way that these systems, which ostensibly are designed to support people, even where that support is being offered, can be so difficult to access. And I understand that the way that they've dramatised that is is very true to life. Perhaps on a more positive note, you also wanted to talk about the upswing with Robert Putnam and Shailene Romney-Garrett.
3: I do, and for folks who have the time, I would really recommend reading this book, but there's also an interview you can watch that they did talking about the contents. And the the book, The Upswing, it looks at American history over the last about 130 years, and American sense of being part of a collective we, a we that looks out for one another, that feels a sense of connection, and really has a sense for responsibility for how we all do in life. And that really has shifted over time. And those shifts have really affected every single aspect of society. So I believe that looking and understanding at how this has changed, it, it both speaks to how UBI could help to bring the country together in a way that's sorely needs right now, but also recognizing the importance of culture, not just economics, in what goes into having a healthy and successful society.
0: Thank you for bringing this recommendation. I was really interested in this idea that it is going back 150 years, looking at a period of American history, which also was marked by great inequality and the shift it narrates in terms of how America moved from a position of inequality to a position of much greater solidarity. What is it about the UBI that you think would really help to address some of the social challenges that the U.S., I guess, is facing today around partisanship and inequality and some of those
3: issues? For me, the universal aspect of the program is is really key there because, and we see this with existing programs, those that are more broad-based versus those that are more targeted. But when you have a more universal program, it creates a much broader sense of connection across it. That you have that touch point across people in many, many different situations, that you can then feel a sense of connection that stems from that. And so, just like in the US, we have our universal dividend program in the state of Alaska. And up there, we can see very clearly that does create that sense of solidarity and connection. I would expect a full UBI could do a similar thing across the entire United States.
0: Thank you, Dr. Jim Pugh, for spending time with us on the Social Protection Podcast today.
3: It's been a pleasure.
0: And thank you for joining us for this episode of the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org from the International Policy Centre for Inclusive Growth. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and leave a review. Back next month. See you then.